Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a real podcast about fake crimes. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast isn't spoiler-free, so listen at your own risk. This week, I'm extra excited, not only because it's almost summer here, and I'm excited to move into a slower pace of long days and plenty of free time, but also because today's case comes from one of my favorite cozy mystery series of all time. I'm not normally a cozy mystery rereader, because I find that they don't hold up too well after you've solved the whodunit, But there's something about this series that makes it possible to go back to the books again and again, probably because the murders are secondary to the beautiful and eccentric characters with their dry wit and sarcastic humor, and they are characters worth revisiting over and over again. And today, I'll be taking you to the beginning of it all with Meg Langslow as she solves her first murder with the help of her father, the mystery-loving poison expert, Dr. Langslow, and her Shakespeare-quoting love interest, Michael. I'm your host, Risa P., and this is Reader, I Murdered Him. It all started with peacocks. Specifically, peacocks for a wedding between Rob Langslow and his fiancée, Samantha. Meg, as Rob's sister and maid of honor, was in charge of procuring them. Meg Langslow was a blacksmith, both by passion and trade, and she made her living creating high-quality custom ironworks on commission, as well as through her booth and various craft fairs and renaissance fairs, where the right customer was willing to pay sky-high prices for a sword that wouldn't snap in half the first time you tried to fight with it. And while someone with the upper body strength of a blacksmith is typically someone you don't want to mess with, Meg has one massive flaw. She's the kind of person who can't say no. You probably know people like this, and if you don't, you probably are one. And you know how quickly your life can get filled up doing things for other people. The way those little, could you just, or I could really use, start to push out all those things on your own to-do list that you actually need to get done for yourself. And as a side note, if you're the kind of person who takes advantage of people like that, there's a special circle of hell waiting for you. Pick up your own crap from the store, rearrange your own schedule to pick your kids up from after-school care, summer camp, band practice. Relying on the insecurities of other people is no way to live your life. And if you happen to be the kind of person who finds themselves always saying yes to other people's life maintenance chores, may I just take this moment to remind you that no is a full sentence. But back to Meg. Meg Langslow has found herself the maid of honor in three weddings this summer. For her brother's fiancé, Samantha, her business partner, Eileen, and her mother. The roles require so much work 
that Meg has sublet her studio for the summer and is forced to head down to Yorkville to help make plans and push indecisive brides towards very swift decisions. Eileen has a habit of wishing for unique and hard-to-replicate ideas, only to change her mind at the last minute. And Margaret, Meg's mother, is the kind of woman who needs to renovate her house so the sitting room can match the bridal party colors. So no shortage of possible catastrophes that need to be headed off at the pass. But there's one particular catastrophe Meg can't do anything about, and that is Jane Grover, the sister-in-law of Margaret's fiancé, Jake, sister-in-law from his late wife. You see, Jane seems to believe that Jake has hidden, or given to Margaret, all of her sister's good jewelry. And Meg just happens to stumble across them having a very whispered argument about exactly where the jewels are shortly before they are both supposed to attend Jake and Margaret's engagement party. According to Jake, the jewels are in a safety deposit box, and he's conveniently lost the key. According to Jane, all the jewels have either been sold or given as gifts to Margaret. Now, Meg is by no means an unbiased observer, but she doubts her mother would be hiding fabulous and expensive gifts of jewelry from her fiancé. And it's even less likely that Margaret would ever do anything so crass as marry a man just for his money. So while Meg knows her mother must be innocent, she is curious about what's going on between Jane and Jake, and where all this supposed fortune and jewels might be. Then, as if that's not enough, there's the drama between Meg's father and Samantha, her brother's fiancé, who Dr. Langslow is convinced is not the right fit for his son Rob, who he's planning to spend the summer trying to convince to call off the wedding drama that only escalates when Meg happens to walk in on the end of a conversation between Samantha and Jane, where Jane seems to be threatening her. Ending on the note of, I'm sure you wouldn't want that to get out. And unless you're talking about some kind of wild animal, which isn't totally out of the question considering there was talk of live peacocks earlier, It isn't the closing line you'd expect from a pleasant conversation between wedding guests who've just met. But then Jane Grover disappears. Nothing anyone is too concerned about at first. She's been miserable to everyone, going out of her way to make enemies, embarrassing people, being rude, making sure everyone knows she disapproves of her late sister's husband remarrying. So her not being around... It's kind of a relief. Until she doesn't even show back up at Jake's house to sleep in her own bed, and then doesn't turn up the next day for breakfast. But it isn't until Dr. Langslow is taking a walk on the beach, choosing to use a largely ignored trail that requires taking several rickety ladders down a cliffside before you can actually make it to the beach, that Jane Grover turns up. Luckily for Jane Grover, and unluckily for the person who killed her, Dr. Langslow is both a doctor and an avid fan of murder mysteries, so he's able to secure the scene and determine cause of death quickly while waiting for the sheriff to arrive and officially start the investigation. According to both Dr. Langslow's report at the scene and the official coroner's report, 
Jane Glover had no water in her lungs, which means she didn't drown and then wash up on the beach later. And there is a fracture on the left rear side of the top of her skull from a rounded object. She died within minutes of the blow and, based on the way the blood settled in her limbs, was very likely that she was moved to the beach after her death. Now, if you were to fall from a rickety ladder trying to climb down and see the beach, you'd fracture your head too. But a fall from 40 feet up, which is where the ladder started, would have caused a lot more damage. And while the sheriff hasn't officially designated this case a homicide yet, Dr. Langslow doesn't need any convincing. The fact that there are no other bruises, lacerations, or broken bones from the fall, the fact that the body must have been moved, and the fracture at the top of her head is from a rounded instrument and not the irregular shape of a rock, all seem to point in that direction. Now all the sheriff needs to find is a motive. Luckily for Margaret and Jake, the two most likely suspects, considering they're the only two people in town who know Jane Grover, or at least the only two who admitted to knowing her prior to the engagement party, were out of town. And it starts to feel like this case is hurtling towards a dead end and a box on a shelf that gets labeled as unsolved. There are no feasible suspects, no motives, not even a primary location of the crime scene or... So Meg decides to start tackling the case on her own because she's the maid of honor. And if there's one thing a wedding doesn't need, it's an unsolved murder. Then a seemingly unrelated incident pops up to take everyone's mind off the murder. A fuse in Margaret's house malfunctions. And when someone goes down to check it out, the whole thing shorts, causing a power outage that affects the whole neighborhood and leaves the poor soul who investigated the outage in need of CPR and a stay at the local hospital. And while everyone else sees the fuse box incident as just another story for town gossip, Meg and Dr. Langslow aren't convinced. And if there's a chance, no matter how small, that someone tampered with the fuse box, perhaps the same person who killed Jane Grover, it has to be investigated. And while they're waiting on more information from the electrician, Dr. Langslow has started diving into the backlogs of the town newspaper archives to form an eclectic collection of articles seemingly not at all connected to the case. There are a handful on the scandal of Samantha's former fiance, a stockbroker who swindled about half the town of Yorkville out of large chunks of their savings before trying to flee to Brazil, before realizing he, too, had been swindled by his partner. And then there are a collection of obituaries of elderly ladies who have died of natural causes. Nothing in particular to connect them. Yet. But before Dr. Langslow can make any attempt to put those pieces together, or explain why he's been carrying around the ashes of his late great-aunt, waiting for an opportunity to swap them for the ashes of Jake's late wife, Meg makes an explosive leap forward in the case. Are you planning a big event this summer? One that requires catering? Whether it's a backyard barbecue or an exquisite wedding by Firefly Light under a tent that costs six months' rent, 
you only get to keep for one night. Goodbye Stale has you covered. That's right, we do catering now. Whether you're looking to feed a family of five or a crowd of 500, Goodbye Stale has a meal plan package that's just right for you. Now we know what you're thinking. How exactly can a mail service meal company cater? And here's the answer. We can't. We do something even better. We provide you with the fresh ingredients you need and the step-by-step instructions to do it all by yourself. Why hire a caterer when you could drive several hundred pounds of various meats and fresh vegetables packed with dry ice in a car that's definitely not made for transporting that much food to your venue? We're sure they'll have a kitchen. And with our photorealistic plating guide, giving your guests a luxury meal experience has never been easy. But you won't have time to plate all your guests' meals at your own wedding reception, you say? Not to worry. That sounds like a job for the maid of honor. Goodbye, Stale. We do some of the work, and you're on your own for the rest. And this time, it's not a metaphorical explosion. It's a literal bomb. Disguised as a music box from a lovelorn suitor, Meg finds an ornate hand-carved box with her name on it resting on her bed at the costume-themed engagement party for Eileen. The strangest thing about this box isn't that it's come from someone Meg has made it perfectly clear she has no interest in, but that the box is ticking. Without thinking about it, Meg throws the box out of the window before it explodes. And while the sheriff is called out again, other than checking the property for more bombs, there isn't much for them to do. So they leave and promise to continue working on the case, the odds of them finding a solution seeming to diminish with each unrelated attack. And then, at Samantha's bridal shower, all the guests are infected with a terrible case of food poisoning, except after further examination. It's determined not to be food poisoning, but a case of good old traditional poisoning, with a vegetable alkaloid having been secreted in the salsa. Now, I'm going to take a break from our murder investigation for a minute. And in case you forgot, the murder of Jane Grover is still the primary crime here. And just say that maybe, just maybe, if all these things are going wrong while you're trying to maid of honor plan three simultaneous weddings, it's time to tell everybody to elope and go home. Also, I'd just like to throw this question out there. I planned a moderate-sized wedding, and at no time did it occur to me that I could or should make my maid of honor do things like check in on my dress alterations or plan the ostentatious peacock displays at the reception. I feel like that should all solidly land on the bride and groom's to-do list. Are there brides out there that really expected their maid of honor to work as a de facto wedding planner? And are these women still friends today? I don't know. If this was you, send me an email because I need to know. Anyway, back to Meg Langslow, the detective blacksmith and the forgotten murder of Jane Grover. Now, Meg is stuck doing more work that should really belong to the brides and their respective future husbands. And she's walking back home after midnight 
when she sees Jake taking a box that she knows is supposed to contain the ashes of his late wife, but which now contain the ashes of her great aunt Sophie, because she and her father have conducted the world's most bizarre Indiana Jones-style bait-and-switch after breaking and entering into Jake's house. And he's taking this box to the beach, tearing it up, and tossing it into the ocean, waiting until it sinks before he walks away. But this is nothing compared to the next thing Meg finds on the bluffs overlooking the beach. While out looking for a lost dog, Meg happens to stumble across a bear trap rigged up to be lethal enough to kill a human, which she discovers after accidentally triggering it to send a machete flying across the tree line, right where her neck would have been if the dog she'd been trying to save hadn't been in a particularly foul mood, snapping at her hand and causing her to jump back just in time. But even after what was obviously a trap set for attempted murder, the sheriff, who has somehow managed to remain nameless on all documents from this case, has yet to get any real suspects for any of these crimes. And now, it's time for the first of our three weddings, Samantha and Rob. And while the wedding has some hitches, the real drama comes at the reception, where Samantha is seen riding off into the sunset with some other guy. Not much of a loss if you ask any member of the Langslow Hollingsworth family other than Rob. But the real amazing part here is that the sheriff actually shows up with several deputies to do a search of Samantha's room. And what they find is pretty damning. Books on poisons and electrical wiring, papers detailing her first fiancé's supposed embezzlement, financial documents, even a paper trail leading all that stolen money to Ian, Samantha's former fiancé's roommate, and the man who Samantha just happens to have run off with, along with all the stolen money. And with all this evidence, the sheriff feels ready to tie up every case that's landed on his plate this summer. Samantha did it. Obviously. All of it. She killed Mrs. Grover because Jane somehow found out about Samantha's plan, and all the rest was just to keep the Langslows off her trail until she could make her big escape. And while Meg is relieved her brother won't be saddled with Samantha for life, she doesn't quite believe the story the sheriff is trying to pass off. Something about Samantha killing off Jane Grover doesn't make sense. And neither do all the books found in Samantha's room. Meg has known Samantha for a long time, and she's not the book type. It would be much more like her to have hired, seduced, or manipulated someone else into doing her dirty work, not research how to do it herself. So, while the sheriff tries to wrap the case up, Meg decides to keep digging. But in this case, it's actually Dr. Langslow and his knowledge of poisons that brings the case to its dramatic conclusion. Saving his reveal for the most dramatic moment possible, the hold your peace part of his ex-wife's wedding, Dr. Langslow accuses Jake of murdering not just his sister-in-law, but his first wife as well. And not only that, but he accuses Jake of planting the evidence in Samantha's room that would make her look like a suspect in the Grover murder. 
but not the evidence about the embezzlement, which was a crime it looked like she'd get away with, as she was currently still holed up in a country with no extradition treaty. But luckily for us, there is no protracted court case where Jake manages to do some legal manipulating to get himself out of charges or throw doubt on our tidy conclusion. Because Jake confesses. He says that he noticed Dr. Langslow giving Jane Grover a tour of his gardens when they first met, telling her all about signs of poisoning by common household plants a topic that Dr. Langslow managed to talk about with everyone, as poisons and their effects on the human body was a particularly passionate topic for him ever since his son Rob almost died eating a poinsettia. And Jane, tactless and mean-spirited, but not stupid, noticed the similarity between the symptoms of a poisoning victim and her late sister's sudden illness. Jake found out she was onto him and lured her out to his storage shed, conveniently outside of town and surrounded by a whole lot of nothing. And he used one of his old golf clubs to cause the blunt force trauma that killed her. Then he made sure he had a solid alibi, drove her body back to Yorkville and dumped it on the beach. And he almost got away with it. But the real question is, what would have happened to Margaret Hollingsworth if her ex-husband hadn't stopped her wedding? Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. If you can't tell, I've gotten sick yet again, and that is the cause of my strange, scratchy voice. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode anyway, um, hopefully even as much as I enjoyed sharing the start to one of my favorite cozy mystery series with you. The Meg Langslow series is a comedic cozy that relies on its eccentric and lovable cast of characters more than bizarre mysteries. And if you did pick this one up, I'd love to talk to you about it in the Goodreads discussion group or you can send me an email at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. But don't worry, you don't have to remember any of that. All the links you need are in the show notes. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like it, go annoy all your friends about it in real life until they subscribe too. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. That's always mystery.